Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey there, team. What's good? Welcome back once again. With me this week for episode 117 is trader Larry Allentoff. If the name rings a bell, then chances are you've seen the TV series Wall Street Warriors, where Larry was featured on season two. Larry's had a long-lasting and impressive career as a trader. In his earlier years, he worked as a prop trader for Paul Tudor Jones. Later on, he ran the largest group of traders on the AMAX at the time. Then when he went over to the New York Board of Trade, Larry became the largest trader in frozen concentrated orange juice. Nowadays, Larry is CIO of the Toro Fund. During this episode, we cover the thing which helped Larry to become consistent, why there's great opportunity in knowing when things that should happen don't happen, how he's been able to successfully apply a similar trading method from the floor to the screens, and how a market obsession has carried him this far. Please enjoy the interview, guys. Hit me up on Twitter if you have any thoughts at Chat with Traders. Here is my guest from the state of Florida, Larry Allentoff. Larry, what's going on, boss? How's your day been? Oh, the day's been uh, actually sort of interesting because uh, the United States markets are really, really slow right now. The the actual indexes aren't doing much, but tomorrow we have a Fed meeting. So we really spent the day trying to model what we think should happen tomorrow based on three different scenarios that the Fed might do. So basically, most of our day was was... Uh, dealing with with that type of stuff, which we normally don't do, but we'll get into that. But today we we actually did do it, and the markets are quiet and giving us a ch- chance to do that. So, and there's there's some interesting stuff with that that uh, we'll get into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely want to pick up on your mention there of modeling what you think may happen tomorrow. So let's circle back to that to get this started. I know you've been trading for around about 30 years, which is a fair while. Um, where and how did you first get started, though? Oh, Aaron, that is, a, that is a, an actually a great question. 
and it's <laughs> it's a funny story. Believe it or not, on October 19th, 1987, I was at the University of Michigan and I was eating lunch and one of the guys that I was eating with had mentioned to the whole table, did anybody see what was going on in the stock market? And, and literally I finished lunch. I went downstairs into the basement. I was totally by myself and I put on what was then FNN, which is now CNBC. And sure and behold, the stock market was literally crashing and it was down 20 something percent. That moment that I sat there and watched TV, I was hooked, hooked and obsessed. And I've been that way, fortunately or unfortunately, for 30 years. And that, that's literally what got me totally involved in the markets <laughs> was that specific day. So had you had any interest in the stock market at all prior to that event? You know, I, I knew about the stock market and I had and I had watched some stuff, but I, I never really thought about it in terms of what it meant and in terms of, you know, how to think about it properly and the correct way. And what's funny about that day was that I remember there were a couple of quote unquote gurus that, you know, they claimed that they actually called for a crash and when the crash came, all of a sudden, the entire media wanted to speak to them because now they were a guru and they could tell you what was going to happen. Well, I specifically remember one of them, and they were saying, well, now that the stock market crashed, we're going to go into this great depression. So I'm sitting there, I think it was my sophomore year of college, and I'm like, well, I guess if we go into a depression, I need to change my career. So at the time, I was a, uh, getting a degree in finance. And I said, you know what, I better maybe do a dual degree so I won't have to worry about it if we're in a depression. And I actually went and became uh, an accountant as well as a, uh, a degree in finance. So I double degreed basically because of that day. Okay. Okay. So how did you begin learning how to trade? I, I mean, I'm, we're probably skipping a, a short period of time here, but you know, when you decided that you were going to start trading, how did that sort of come about and how did you begin learning the stock market? I totally started probably a little different than most people. I literally started, I got graph paper, a giant poster of graph paper, and I started plotting prices in my dorm room uh, after the stock market crash. And I was watching gold and the S&Ps, and literally every single day, I would track the high, low, and close, not knowing anything at all. And over a period of time, I started to notice what, what I call a pressure point, and whereby the market would either go up big or down big, and I was able to start to sense it before it happened. So I would see something, for example, in, in the S&P, and I would have a pretty good inclination that you know the next x days we're going to be strong to the upside or or strong to the downside so that's literally how i started and after that i did what probably most people do and go to the uh, business library or the bookstore and get as many books on trading and people that traded uh, as possible as you can get okay and these pressure points you refer to is that something that you continued using, um, sort of moving forward or was that just sort of where you began to cut your teeth? No, I did. I used those points in 
virtually every single market, mainly futures markets for the most part. But that's where I really started to put together a track record. And it was small, but it was consistent. And I those pressure points completely existed, probably do today, but they were they became, they were very very clear back in you know the late '80s, early '90s, and a lot of people talk about there were some big trend followers back then. You know how and the markets have obviously changed. And the, the markets always change. So for me, for the first X year, seven years, six years, I was completely using that method that I had literally taught myself. And, and, and I could take the graph or the chart and I could turn it upside down and I could see it from the opposite way. And I, I would literally just, my mind just started to totally look at different patterns. And I could see patterns just from the open, high, low, close, like other people can. But I was doing it at such a young age that I was becoming, got kind of getting in rhythm with the markets, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what is a pressure point? Can you just kind of, I might, I know it might be a little bit difficult to explain because we've only got audio here, but you know, can you just give us a basic idea of what is a pressure point? Yep. And it's very simple. It's basically what is known as, for example, an ascending triangle. It's basic tech. Uh, it's basically technical terms, basic stuff like uh, an ascending wedge or a, a triangle whereby the market's gone or even a market that's gone completely sideways for a period of time, and you're literally looking for a breakout in either direction. And you can overlay that market with an, an, an indicator, for example, like a stochastic, and you can start to notice divergences on that chart where the stochastics today are higher than they were recently, but the market is, is making higher highs. And you can tell and you can start to get a sense that if it breaks above a certain level, the market can really take off here. Have you found those sort of things to become less reliable over time? So I think what happened is they've certainly become, I don't want to say less reliable. They're reliable, but in the, in the, what I'll call the old days, a move, a move from one of those pressure points could last weeks, if not months. And I think today, which is something that we definitely need to discuss, but the way that information works today, these moves can happen so quickly that it's literally incredible. What used to take two weeks or a week can literally happen in an hour now. So it's, it's, a, it's a little trickier because of that. And I think some of that has to do with the information flows that are going on. When you say those moves can happen in the space of an hour, are you talking about like the same amount of range or are you just talking about the, the actual move is over and done with a lot quicker? Well, yeah, it's a combination of both. Right now in the stock market, for example, I'll use that as an example. We have these high frequency traders and basically they're sniffing out order flow. And when orders come in to buy – Oftentimes they they can literally they're running in front of these guys and they're moving this the price up so rapidly and so quickly that in the old old days when there was a specialist and the price would move a quarter at a time, you know, it was a little different. You had more time to evaluate, to think. Where today you don't have that time. If your order wasn't in, you you 
you could literally miss the move. It can happen that fast. And, and, and the models have to adjust. Now, that's not to say if we get some crazy supply-demand situation, you know, the markets will trend. And the markets can trend, and they do trend. But the trends look and feel a little bit different than they do back in the 90s, if that makes sense. Well, let's continue on the path of your journey as a trader, if you will. So I think the first actual job you got in markets, you worked at uh, Refco. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? I think that was a Forex broker, if I'm correct. Yeah, they were, they were at the time probably the largest for, foreign exchange broker. We competed with you know, all the banks, Citigroup, Citibank, JP Morgan, and Basically, what I was doing is was running a desk and, and actually learning how to be a market maker in foreign exchange and metals. And uh, over the course of about six, seven months, I, I picked it up pretty well and I ended up running the desk. So I was actually running the, the overnight desk. So I had a kind of interesting hours. I worked like two in the afternoon to midnight, New York time. But the experience that I got from there was just being, you know, making a market and learning how to kind of get out, get in, get out, get in, get out, that kind of thing. And uh, trying for the most part not to take too much risk. What was interesting was my boss at the time saw that I was able to, and I was using these pressure points again and watching the, the, the order flow in the markets. And my boss said, you know what, we think you should, you should trade for the, for Refco. You should be a, uh, have a line and, and, and trade. And I did. And uh, I was fortunate and, and I started to become very, very consistent in the markets. And uh, one of the, I don't know if it was my boss or somebody else, and I don't know if you want to go into that story, but had brought my name up to a market wizard, basically. And uh, I started managing money for, uh, for, a, for one of the market wizards. And that's basically how I ended up going from Refco to working for basically Paul Tudor Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I jumped the gun. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Before we get into you meeting Paul Tudor Jones, which we're obviously going to spend a little bit of time on, I want to pick up on your mention there of becoming very consistent. How were you able to become very consistent? Can you, can you relate that to anything? Was there anything you did which really helped you to get that consistency? Yeah, I can. It's very, very interesting. There is a fabulous book called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And it's by uh, Edwin LeFay. And it is an absolute classic. And I, I, every one of my traders that have worked for me have read that book at least, at least one time, if not more. In that book, there's one of the stories when, when the head trader, Larry Livingston, loses his, basically goes bankrupt, loses his money. He comes back with a stake and he's only really can trade one thing and one time and he has to be right. If he's wrong, he's basically completely done. If he's right, he'll get a, a bigger trading line and he can come back. And, and, and the thing is about that is that if you think about it, I kind of back then did the same thing. I would say I would wait for every single thing to line up before I made the trade, everything. So I wouldn't just take good trades or what I thought were going to be a good trade. I would take great trades 
and I would put the probability of being successful completely in my, you know, in my corner, if that makes sense. And instead of just throwing darts and being all over the place, that's kind of what I did, you know, back in the beginning is that I just superly made sure that everything lined up. And it's kind of modeled after, you know, after what he was able to do or what he did in, in, in those, in those books. So I guess in some ways it was about being very strict and very disciplined in picking the sort of trades that aligned with your plan. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is absolutely critical to be completely have your game plan and be able to be extremely disciplined and not be influenced by, you know, noise or something else. And that is a, that, that was a huge key for me. And I learned that really early on. And to this day, it's the same thing. And to be successful and to survive, you have to have the utmost discipline and, you know, basically a rigorous game plan that is well thought out before the trade's put on. All right, Larry, well, tell us about how you met Paul Tudor Jones. How did this come about? So uh, after a while working for Refco, I started to put together a fairly decent track record. It wasn't, it wasn't over the course of years. It was over the course of maybe nine months, eight months, something like that. But it was very, very consistent and it was very, very good. And I got introduced not specifically to Paul, but somebody in the, in the Tudor group and they were, I think they had started a program a year earlier or two years earlier. And they were, from my knowledge, they were, they were picking approximately 20, 25 traders that they thought would be good. And they were going to allocate money to them. And, you know, those traders would basically trade piece of Paul's funds, if that makes sense. Okay. And that's what you did? Yeah. So I was accepted into the program and, and literally I left Refco and I started to trade. Uh, I started to trade for, for basically for Tudor. Yes. Okay. And whereabouts were you trading? Were you trading from an office? Were you trading on the floor at that stage? Yep. No, I, I was trading, uh, I was trading off the, off the exchange floor and I had a little office over at, uh, at, at the same firm. I had an office over at Refco and, uh, and that's basically where I was trading, you know, and that's basically where I did my trading. And I continued to do the same thing, very disciplined, watching the markets, looking at the markets and, and picking my spots where I thought that momentum would carry the day, if that makes sense. And I, and, and I, so I was, I was still using, you know, the basic technical stuff that I had taught myself that, that was working you know, fairly decently across all markets. It wasn't like uh, it worked in one market and not, not somewhere else. It worked across the markets. It was the same human psychology that when it exists, it doesn't matter where it is, it exists. And did you have much interaction or, or much to do with Paul during that time while you were trading his funds? No, no. It was, we were basically a complete, I mean, we had spoken to people within within the group and I can tell you a story about that, but we were basically had no guidance at all from Paul. Uh, we were completely um, separated from them, from, you know, from what, what they were doing. And we were, we, we existed basically on our own. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd love to hear that story that you hinted at. Well, 
so, sometimes things are Paul, you know, Paul's known for being, you know, for being completely a genius. And he is. And I remember back in the old days, they used to have faxes instead of like emails and stuff like that. And I remember that, uh, one day I went over to the fax machine and there was a piece of paper, uh, that came through the fax. And I, I had just was talking to one of the other traders that, uh, I think was also managing money for them. And lo and behold, it looked like it had a list of all of the traders positions. And it's, you started to put one and two together and you could see, you know, here was something that you're out trading for him, but you realize that the, the genius part of it is he's building a sentiment indicator or something to see where traders may lie. So for example, if everybody was long cocoa and, you know, somebody in their group would know that that's valuable information because if we're all along, then maybe, you know, a lot of other people are along and it kind of like, it kind of dovetails with the end, what I call the end of those pressure points. And, 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 and the market started to get a lot choppier towards the end of that. And I always wonder if it kind of like, if, if it kind of like runs amok between the two, if that makes sense. Everybody was trying to game something else. Yeah. So he was trying to, when you describe it as a sentiment indicator, you're talking about amongst the traders who he had funded? Yeah. So he, he had funded traders and, you know, obviously he keeps track, you know, somebody in there was keeping track of everyone's positions and it just gives, it just gives really, really good information to, you know, a, a, to an amazing trader, to somebody, a great trader. It just gives more and more information about what other people are doing in the markets as opposed to what people say they're doing in the markets. These are what people are actually doing in the markets in their positions. So we probably weren't supposed to see that fact, but it was, um, nonetheless, it, it, it was interesting. And for me, like I, I was always, which started again in the 1987 when I was watching, I, I've always questioned things. I always, you know, I always ask why, why is something happening? Why is a market moving? What's going on? And, you know, you question everything. So you start to see that and it's just, you know, it's like, wow, okay, there's, there's, you can, you can get valuable information if you know what other people are doing and it's ingenious and it works. <laughs> Yeah. And even though you didn't have a great deal or a great amount of interaction with Paul himself, obviously you were very familiar with who he was and the sort of level that he was trading at. Was there anything which you picked up or you noticed about him that really made him such a, a legendary trader? Just the stories that, you know, basically that everybody heard you know, starting down in the New York Board of Trade when he when he made some unbelievable trades in cotton, and uh, and obviously the stock market crash of '87. Uh, if memory recalls, I, I think he made like 25 percent. He called it. He had an analog model that matched up with it pretty well. But you know, for the most part, you know, people that have existed for so long in trading, um, it's definitely. It's definitely cool to see not only how they evolve and, and what they do, but, you know, how they do it and how they go about it. So no, no real, you know, no real dead secrets from, from what, from what they're doing, but you know, they're, they're very, very good, obviously. <laughs> so you spent a bit of time trading Paul Tudor Jones, uh, his funds. You then went on to trade the funds of another 
market wizard who will remain um, unnamed for now. But tell us a little bit about how that opportunity came about and what sort of things you were doing at sort of the next milestone in your career. Yep. Well, that that actually the 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 other market wizard came several several years later. Um, it is something that 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 I that that actually you, your viewers might find interesting with with Paul. Um, if you want to just go back for one quick second. Yeah, sure. So at the, I think this was the second year, the third year of his program. And, uh, I had remembered speaking to the other traders that, and again, I was 22, 23 years old at the end of the year, the successful ones not only got paid, but they were getting this, I think it was like $10,000 bonus. So obviously I was very, very excited. I had a decent year. And uh, I remember I'm sitting home, living in New York City, struggling, rents are high, all like any other young 22-year-old would be thinking. And I remember getting this box in the mail. And it was a, a little white box. I think it came like, I don't know if it was FedEx or it was in the mail, but it was a really cool looking box. It happened to be from Paul Tudor Jones. And uh, I opened up the box and it said, congratulations. Uh, Paul's making a donation in your name to his new charity that he's starting, known as the Robin Hood Foundation. So here I am, I'm 22, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I need the money. Uh, you know, I, I actually, I needed that money. Looking back, obviously, it's the greatest charity in the world, unbelievable charity. And um, But it was just, it's just funny because some things have a way, you know, some things when you look back, like, they become major milestones. And for me, needing, you know, kind of needing more money for me became a, a major milestone. And that box literally, when I got that after that, I literally really, really thought about trading off floor. And I had, I had a friend that was literally begging me every single day to come and join him. And he was working on the American stock exchange and trading stock options. And, and, and after that, I, uh, I actually left and, and joined him, uh, on the American stock exchange where we ran a huge group. And I know that you had a, uh, one of the Blair Hull traders on that I think was doing it in the P coast. And, uh, but that's a whole, that's, you know, uh, this, the American stock exchange. And I don't know if you want to talk about that is, was a little bit different than the P coast, but very, very interesting nonetheless. And for the next Five or six years, I ended up trading on the American Stock Exchange and running the largest group down there at the time. Okay. And what exactly were you trading on the floor there? So we we ended up having guys that were trading every single – literally, we would put people in every single market um, trading equity options. And completely different exchange. So it was the first time I was actually on a floor or on exchange – and the way it was set up was really interesting because you didn't have to think at all. The specialists would do all the thinking and they were required to basically give 40 to 60% of any trade that came in out to the crowd that was helping to assist the specialist. So the guys in the ring didn't have to really do anything. They would just be handed trades. And it was interesting because – it was very, very, very – it was not so competitive, very, very, very easy to make money, not knowing what you're doing. And uh, 
we had guys making just really ridiculous money, never asking how they're making it or anything. And just because the specialists would be giving them tickets and they would be getting trades that were basically guaranteed winners, if that makes sense, with very, very little risk. So obviously what we did is we went out and hired as many, as many guys as we could. And we put them in all the different markets, all the different equities. And, uh, you know, we basically ran a giant book because of that. And they were just down there. Some of them, you know, did, did question what they were doing and tried to learn. But it's funny because out of the 50 guys that we had working for us, I think uh, maybe one still trading today, which is, uh, which is you know, interesting in and of itself. And the rest of them are gone. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I mentioned before a market wizard who is the second one who will, will leave unnamed. Was that the trader who joined on the, on the floor? No. So a- after the a- after the American Stock Exchange, things started to happen towards the end. And, and, and your other trader was talking about it basically on, on the Picos, for example. On the old days, the American Stock Exchange had no competition whatsoever. So for a stock like Circus Circus or IBM or Intel that was listed down there, there was no competition. So if somebody wanted to trade an Intel option, they would have to come down and see the specialist on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, the trade would occur, and that was it. What happened a couple years later, and this is, this is the reason why a lot of these traders no longer existed, was all these other exchanges started to, uh, basically started to, started to trade these same stocks that were traded on the American Stock Exchange. So all of a sudden, where the spreads were, the bid and offer was a quarter dollar wide or half a dollar wide, started to become an eighth wide or a dime wide. And all of a sudden, what was very, very easy, no longer was easy. You actually had to start to think about what you were doing and why you were doing it. And it, th- that competition literally killed those floors. And um, the American Stock Exchange w- was no different. And all of a sudden, we had the Boston Exchange. You had the Peacoast. You had uh, 
the CBOE and all these other exchanges were listing, basically were breaking up the monopoly that the American Stock Exchange had. And uh, if you didn't really know what you were doing and how you were doing it, you were kind of in a little bit of a tr- in, in a little bit of trouble. And uh, for me, after you know, after X years with that, I ended up going over to what was then the New York Board of Trade. And uh, on the New York Board of Trade, I ended up going into, believe it or not, the frozen concentrated orange juice pit. And uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Trading Places. But uh, it was very, very similar to that. So I ended up going to a completely different exchange where the rules were completely different than the American Stock Exchange rules. And um, this is the first time that I would say that there was basically real trading. This was complete open outcry trading. You had to be first. You had to be fast. You had to be the best, the best price. And – survival was was basically nobody was handing you anything survival was no guarantee you actually had to be able to think make complicated two-sided markets at times and uh completely different puzzle if that makes sense than it was on the american stock exchange and you also aaron which which is which is interesting but you had to be very anticipatory if that makes sense you had to think about your position not necessarily how it exists today, but how it would look tomorrow and a week from and a week from tomorrow and try to figure out the best way to balance that position off. So it, it, it ended up being a, a completely, completely different experience being on that floor. Just so we don't leave any loose ends, Larry, I definitely want to speak to you about trading um, orange juice. But your involvement with the second market wizard who we referenced, what was the involvement there? Was that in relation to the frozen orange juice? I mean, just so that we you know, can, can tie that off and keep moving. Yeah, so basically after, you know, the, the, the second market wizard comes into play a couple of years later after the floor. Um, not after the floor, excuse me, towards the end of, of, of the New York Board of Trade. There was like a yeah, three-year period where there was the, the second market wizard did not yet appear. Okay. Um, yeah, sure. that's, that's why, sorry, that's why I didn't bring that up yet. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. So how did you get into trading <laughs> frozen concentrated orange juice? I mean, it just seems like such a, <laughs> a random thing to trade. I mean, I know it's a real commodity, but why is it a tradable commodity? Like how widely is it actually used? Well, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not really widely used. Believe it or not, they, they used it in the, the prison population. They were, that's usually what, what they were using it for. But the market at this time in, in orange juice was fairly, fairly crazy and fairly active. Uh, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of players and there, was, there were some very, very large players you know, off floor that actually needed the market to hedge. There was no fresh orange juice market at the time. So they were using the frozen to basically hedge their fresh. And for us, it was great because we had, it was tremendous order flow, tremendous things were going on in there. And a real theme started to occur. And it had occurred for me throughout my entire trading experience, but it really started to become concrete on that floor. And the, the thing that the way I think about it is that 
And they always say when things that should happen do not happen, that is such a big information piece. There, there is so much noise on the trading floor. When you come onto the trading floor in the old days, there's just so much, it's so chaotic. If, if, if I brought you down there or somebody came down there, you wouldn't realize what you would just hear noise and screaming. But in that, some of that is very, very valuable information. And, and I, and I, and I think, and I know I'm getting random here, but I think that you're seeing it like today where you have so much information and so much different data coming at everybody. It's very similar to the trading floor. Uh, it's very, very similar to the trading floor. And the best traders were able to figure out what true information is and what information will be impacted in the market versus what noise is. And too many people get carried away with noise. You know, they'll see something on the tape or this or that versus what true information is. And the true information is what we are seeking to, you know, to achieve and, 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 and to, and basically looking to model. And that, that is, that is literally the, the biggest key. So how are you able to differentiate between the two? I mean, I guess that's where it becomes really tricky is actually differentiating what is noise and what's uh, information or, or signal. Yeah. And that really comes from a couple of things. It comes from, and, I, and I'm actually going to, I'll give you an example. So we were, we were down in orange juice and we were in the pit and there were a bunch of, uh, a bunch of, a bunch of order flow started to come in into orange juice and they were buying massive, massive amounts of call options. Basically they were making a quote unquote bullish bet on the f- future price of orange juice. And they were doing it in such a big way that the price of orange juice should have been moving up at this time. I think coming into the thing, we, we might have traded, for example, a thousand options a day. During this three-day period, we were trading 5,000 options a day, 6,000 options a day. So it was so extreme. And it was just straight out a call buying. Buy them, buy them, buy them. And the price of orange juice should have gone up. And all the guys, I don't know, you know how familiar we want to talk about options, but the guys in the pit, the floor traders that were making markets and selling these calls had to buy futures to protect themselves. And the, the call buying was so fast and furious that everybody was raising their implied volatilities to protect themselves, and they were being forced to buy more and more futures. Well, that was all fine and dandy, and my partner made a great point. Two days later, the futures price did not move at all, completely didn't move. That bit of information was absolutely critical and huge. And I'll tell you this, a month later, Orange Juice lost 50% of its value. It absolutely got imploded. And Aaron, I see it today. So take that one little example of, of, of something that should have happened that didn't happen. And we see it today. We see it. Sometimes you get exogenous call buying, for example, in a stock. Okay. And we, we had one a couple of weeks in Starbucks. We had it a couple of weeks ago. They came in and they're buying massive amounts, abnormal amounts of call buying. Stock price doesn't move. Doesn't move up. That's huge information. 
two weeks later, the, the price of Starbucks goes down, down pretty big, six, seven dollars. So it's it's being able to use huge information and the correct information. And the best information is actual impacted information. So these were people that were coming in and they were buying call options and they were putting their money down. And when things don't happen that should happen, that's when there's real money to be made, when the markets literally go the opposite way. And by the way, if you think about it, um, look at the, the, the election that we just had with Trump. Everybody said the market should be down and down big and it should have been a bloodbath, et cetera. And when it wasn't, that's information. So it's, it's basically, it's every single day, it's every trade asking yourself what should happen and what did happen. And if you start to think along those lines, all of a sudden you, you start to, you start to see what's working, what doesn't work. And you could start to model sort of correctly as opposed to modeling based on, okay, if a market, for example, closed lower nine days ago and, you know, and the RSI is, is, is above a certain level, we'll buy the market. I mean, that's just backtesting stuff where this is actual market information. So in these couple examples you gave here, you said that the price should have gone up because there were so many people taking bullish bets and buying options. Why did the price not go up and barely move at all? Why not? So what most likely happened was that smart money came in to buy those calls because in reality, they wanted to protect themselves. They wanted to short the futures and have, God forbid, protection if they were wrong, where the calls would basically stop them out. And they came in and they probably, for every call they bought, they would sell a future. So the futures were not moving up as they should have. And the Starbucks example was probably the same thing, where they came in and they buy thousands of upside calls. And you know what? The price isn't moving because they're shorting the stock. Uh, and they could be shorting the stock for any slew of reasons. But there's a, there's, a, there's a probability that that could be smart money, if that makes sense, or insiders or somebody that knows something that's going on. And uh, not all the examples work like that, right? Sometimes they come in and they buy all the calls and the stock moves up. That's fine. That's what's supposed to happen. So it comes down to what, when something's happening that should not happen. That's what should pique your interest and, 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 and look at it that way. That's where real opportunities to make substantial amounts of money lie, when something doesn't happen and should happen. And when you're talking about smart money and you're referring to other participants as, as they, who are you actually talking about? In, in these examples, like I know you don't know specifically, but like a general idea, like who are you referring to here? So like in, in the case of orange juice, there would be smart money would be considered somebody that's actually producing the orange juice crop and they actually have oranges. They know they have better information than anybody. They know, you know, what the demand is. They know how much they're selling and they know they can look out their window and see now, how big their, their crop is. And orange juice is an interesting example because it's a very, very small market and there's 
some people in there, Louis Dreyfus is the biggest player and they basically control a lot of this crop. You wouldn't know if you're standing on a trading floor, you know, who's, you know, which order's coming in, if who it is, but you look for certain patterns and you look for how the market reacts to certain things. And, you know, I know orange juice or the Starbucks example is just, is just two small examples, but it's, it's any way that inf- information or data reacts to the actual impact and the price movement of the underlying and how and how and what should happen. Um, there's no way, like you said, there's no way to always be able to tell what the smart money is or the dumb money, but you start to see patterns and, and you can start to see when you watch news, for example, or different data, that some of it doesn't move the, doesn't move the stock and other times other information does. When we stood on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, if somebody bothered to pick their head up, there were times when there would be 50 brokers coming in to buy, you know, calls or puts or come in for, for, for a reason to buy a stock. Other days, nobody would be there. And I've always said, and we've always tried to model, well, why are brokers coming in today to buy this stock? And you backtrack, you say, okay, let's, let's figure out why. Um, was it a technical point that came out in the market? Was it earnings? Was it some news? What was it that is impacting that price? And I say this because I want to say, as opposed to looking back and saying, okay, you know, IBM went up three days in a row. So therefore the next day should be down that kind of model, if that makes sense. The models that we look at here, what I'm doing now, and the models that we've developed deal with actual things that are happening, informational and data in the markets versus what should happen, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, no, it does make sense. It does make sense. So let's say you spot some of this activity, which seems kind of unusual. Mm -hmm. How do you actually plan a trade and how do you actually trade based on that information? Like how do you actually capitalize on what you've observed? Well, in the case of the ones that we just spoke about, so you would let, uh, we would basically let a little bit of time go by and see what happened. And we know when we model it that, you know, X, Y, and Z should happen. In those two cases in, in orange juice and Starbucks, for example, just to use those two and just to use this one form of information, because there's a, there's a lot of them out there. Um, just to use those two, over the next day or so, those both of those prices should have moved higher, so orange juice and Starbucks. Both cases did not happen, and actually, they both started to go down. So that was the tip-off to a trade. Now, how you express that trade, that's really dependent on the risk tolerance that you have, whether you want to go short it, protect yourself with a call, or... Uh, you know, if you were long, you may be realizing you, you might want to get out because the probability has now changed in that marketplace. And, you know, how basically you, you want to do it, you can short it or, or whatever. That's, that's really up to the individual trader and how they do that. What we do here is we obviously, you, you have to have a point where even if you have that information, you have to have a point where you know you're going to be wrong. And if you're wrong, you have to get out. And, and that, and that's the key. And you're dealing with probabilities. And one of your, one of your Edward Thorpe, who you interviewed, who's amazing, 
talks about in the casinos how he changed, he would change his bet based on probability. When there was a lot of high cards, he would increase his bet. When there weren't, he would have a lower bet. It should almost be no different in the marketplace. When you have information that a price is not doing what it's supposed to do, you know, after you look at thousands of cases, you start to develop a probability of an event likely happening. And if you can weight that probability, you can also weight your bet size so that you have a bigger bet size for a higher probability event occurring. Having said that, you'd still have a stop in place that if you were wrong, but no different than, you know, what, what, what he was talking about on the, on the casino, if you were counting cards or something like that. So it's all about having a probability and the way you get a probability is to have been able to go back and look at as many cases as possible as you can find. Um, we've looked, just so you know, rough and dirty, over 80,000 cases. And with that, we, we are able to put together a fairly good probabilistic point of view as to what should happen in a market. And we can vary our bet sizes based, based on that information. Now, you said that these sort of opportunities can lead to massive rewards. When you were trading frozen orange juice, how much would you say these opportunities made up your, your profit at the end of each year? Like, I, I don't know if you have any numbers on that, but just like a rough idea. No, that, that, that's a great question. So we were in orange juice, we ended up becoming or I ended up becoming, my partner ended up becoming the largest traders in orange juice. And uh, it's funny because uh, I, there was a magazine called Trader Monthly, and I don't know if you're familiar with that or you ever heard of that, but it was a, an actually a pretty famous magazine. They no longer exist, but they had contacted, they had called, I guess, randomly up to our clearinghouse, and they, they had asked if there was anybody that stands out that they should speak to and they brought up my name and they did a, they did a feature in trader magazine on me and, and, and on orange juice. And that led to other opportunities, which I don't know if you want to get into, but in terms of your specific question, we were able to generate very large, very consistent profits. I would say that that event that I told you about in orange juice might have occurred in that one specific market probably once or twice a year where something didn't happen that should have happened and we were able to capitalize on it in a pretty big way. I would say that probably led to 20% of our profits from those events and the other 80 was doing our thing, filling in the puzzles, being anticipatory and, you know, buttoning our positions and, and making, you know, size markets. The beauty is off, you know, you're on the trading floor and there's only, you know, I'm trading in orange juice. I have one market where now, you know, it's funny because you go off floor. I have 7,000 markets theoretically. You know, we have 7,000 stocks that we can look at and apply the same edge that we were applying in orange juice and apply them to 7,000 different stocks. 
So it, it kind of, it's kind of very, very interesting in a weird way, but all the building, you know, you can't just come and say, okay, I'm going to trade, you know, 5,000 stocks. You almost have to figure out what you're doing and then see if you can apply it towards many different things, if that makes sense. Being in orange juice for X years and then being on the Amex and trading one or two stocks, you know, kind of allowed me to see, well, why would the stock move today? Why were brokers in here today? What were they reacting to? What are they looking at? Why is something happening? And I, I think, you know, that that's I think that's a, a really I think that's a really important thing about being successful is to kind of ask yourself, you know, the whys instead of just blindly doing something, if that makes sense. Do you think it's important to always understand why a certain move is happening or, or why a stock's moving a certain way? Or do you just kind of need to be able to react to it? It's sort of, it's a great question. It's sort of a, it's a combination. My, my, my biggest issue was always taking profits too quickly um, and not letting it run long enough. Knowing why something is moving would allow that person to probably stay with the trade longer, uh, if that makes sense. But in today's world, there's no way to really, you're not really ever going to know for, for, for certainty why something is moving. Um, so it, it's kind of like a caveat. It's kind of like, you know, yeah, it'd be great, but the reality is it's not going to happen. So the most important thing is to know when you're wrong and be able to be disciplined to get out of it and structure the trade in such a way that no one trade is going to really hurt you. And, you know, to be able to put together a string of those trades where you have, you know, 60% probability, 65% probability of making money, and you can put together 50 of those, you know, each day or 20 of those each day when something is going on, you know, and just to use that one example where it shouldn't be going on and you pick that up from two days of work before, well, you start to build a portfolio of that. Yeah, you're going to have some losers, but you're going to have an awful lot of winners too. And you're not going to always know why or who's doing what. You're just going to, you know, follow along if that makes sense. And you're going to get in gear with the market, you know, and I don't mean to keep using those two specific examples because there's tons of, you know, different different news that that may move a market or may not move a market and if you just sit and you ask yourself what should happen and what is happening and if it differs from what should happen that's where the opportunity lies so when trump won the market should have gone down but it didn't that told you something so you know how you play that accordingly forgetting your views if you were bearish but that it's that's information so if you have a list of things that you think should happen when they don't happen that is such valuable information even from an individual point of view or trader that you can totally take advantage of that and absolutely make money yeah i like how you keep emphasizing this point i think it's really valuable and i think you're, you're doing a great job of explaining it to us. i think it's it's good that we keep referring back to the same examples as well because it you know adds a lot of context so um yeah no i appreciate that man that's awesome so tell us a little bit about how you're trading today you know i think you've probably already described it to a certain extent 
Is there anything else which you're doing, working on? Give us the, the thousand foot view on how you're actually trading today, like your sort of universe, your time frame, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So it, it, we, we have taken what we had on the trading floor and the observations that we have seen on the trading floor. And we have figured out a way to apply them to basically we're trading equities now. So, and a lot of these equities trade like commodities, uh, as you know, because we spoke about it earlier, these HFTs, the way they, they trade, they move in and out of markets so quickly. These stocks are moving around like commodities, but we, we have taken what we had this quote unquote edge or alpha, and we have been able to apply it to 7,000 domestic stocks here in the United States. And we build portfolios every single day on long and short, and they all have a fundamental catalyst. So there's a reason why these stocks should go up and or down. And we build a balanced portfolio. So it's long, short, that's basically completely balanced so that we're, we're trying to capture, you know, basically that VIG or that extra edge. And it's all based on short-term fundamentals that we can quantify. And we know from looking back, you know, basically for 20 years or 15 years, and we can go back and look at, I think we looked at 86,000 different data points for these names and see how a fundamental change or a fundamental news would move an individual stock up or down over a very short period of time. And I bring up the HFTs because had you been running a portfolio like this in, let's just say, 15 years ago, your holding period on the portfolio might have been two weeks because stocks didn't move as fast as they do today. Well, today at our fund, we hold our portfolio for approximately five days. That's it. So our portfolio is completely turning over continually and it's all based on stuff that we had spoken about earlier and how to identify that, but also other fundamental catalysts that diversifies that portfolio out. Okay. Now, you mentioned that you've got 7,000 stocks in your universe. How many names would you be holding or a position in at any given time? Great question. We approximately hold, I would say, 80 to 100 longs and 80 to 100 shorts at any given time. Out of the 7,000 stocks in the universe, and I mean all the different exchanges, you have to weed out for liquidity. So you're probably going to be left with, let's say, 5,000 stocks. Out of those 5,000 stocks, we probably get signals on 15 a day that, you know, to, to be bought and 15 a day to be, to be sold. So out of thousands of stocks, there's only 15 a day that'll meet the very, very strict criteria that we are specifically looking for and trying to capitalize on. So it's, it's, yeah. And you know something, Aaron, which is crazy, but in the old days, there was no way to do it. Computing power today is so great. Our computers literally go through thousands of, of, of data points and it can do it in literally a minute. And it can literally spit out to us the ones that we need to take a look at. So, and I don't know if we, you could have done that 10 years ago. I think it would have been very, very difficult. Yeah, definitely much slower, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
as you bring that up and you're doing a lot of modeling now and you're looking at such a, a wide universe of equities, has that required you to learn completely new skills, you know, since coming off the floor or have you just hired people to do this for you? That's really a great question. I am not a per se uh, a programmer. So I, I have a, we have a small team of, of four different people in here and uh, one of them programs, but we've also used outside programming uh, to do it. I am literally like complete old school. Like if you saw my desk, I am I have yellow pads on it. I write down notes. I think, um, you know, I'm watching the markets and seeing what's going on versus what should be going on. And I take all of those ideas and then they get spun to my, to the programmers and then they write up stuff and we look at it. It's one of the things I wish I had the time to do, go back and learn how to program. But thankfully, the younger generation can, can do all that and, and they do for me. It's great. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> I just want to go back to a point and speak about it a little bit. Why do you want to run a long short portfolio? What's the advantage of doing so? The advantage for us is that, you know, it was like for us, the, when the floor, we knew the floor was coming to an end and, uh, and everything was going electronic and we, we had seen so many cases and I saw it from the American stock exchange. We had 50 guys working for us and nobody was able to kind of make the leap to the, to the, to the next level where the, you know, off the floor. And we had such really good observations throughout the 20 years of trading that we knew if we can apply what works on a trading floor, but figure it out to doing it off the floor, that it, it could be really, really interesting. And again, a lot of it comes down to because instead of just trading one market, you can trade, you know, X thousands of different markets. And for us, we kind of we kind of got lucky in, in, in a weird way that it all, you know, that kind of all lined up that these notes, you know, the reasons why brokers were in there, the reasons why they were buying or reasons why they were selling, you know, they didn't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I want to buy XYZ today. There's got to be a reason. There's a catalyst for it. And we were able to go back and figure out we had, we had you know, what we call positive expectancy on the trading floor where Every time we did a trade, we mathematically can quantify how much we should make on the trade. Now, not every trade is going to be a winner. So it's over the course of time to figure out exactly mathematically what your edge is. And we were able to take that from the trading floor and bring it off the floor and mathematically quantify. You know, each time we do a trade, we know that over a course of time, we're going to make X, Y, or Z, you know, with the losses, with the slippage, with the commissions, everything built in. And that's kind of cool to see. And for me, it all comes back to sitting down in that basement and watching, literally watching the stock market crash that hooked me 30 years ago. And I'm still hooked to this day. And I, I remember, Aaron, I remember Every single Friday on the floor, I would be so depressed. I would leave the floor on Friday so depressed because there was no trading on the weekend. And I'd have to literally wait till Monday morning to get back there. And 
it's weird, but I, I, I mean, I feel like kind of the same way. So I, I, I wake up every single day, just so excited. I just, it's just, we're basically become obsessed, which is good and bad. But I basically for 30 years, completely obsessed, you know, about the whys and what's happening and why it's happening and try to look at ways to make money. And how key do you think your passion and your obsession, as you describe it, for trading has been to get you to where you are today? I think that my personality, yeah, I think I never, you know, it's like, it's weird. You see people sometimes give up. I'm not, I'm, I will always keep coming back for more, if that makes sense. I'm always trying to learn, always trying to get better. And I think my personality completely fit into that, into that motor, into that model. And always, you know, like I'll go home at night and, I, and I'll spend an hour and a half and I'll go through the entire day and I, I'm not, I don't get lazy about it. It's just, it is, it's, it's almost like a workaholic kind of, uh, you know, background that I have. Like I just don't stop. My wife's not happy about it, but, <laughs> and I, I think that's helped me. Now, Larry, I want to ask you a question. So, you know, someone like yourself who's been involved in trading for, you know, around 30 years now, it's a long time. I think what I've done in the past when I've spoken to traders who have been trading for similar periods of time, I've asked them sort of like what things have changed over that period of time, you know, what things have changed over the last 30 years. But I was having a conversation with Jeff Davis, who was on, I think he was originally on episode 70. Anyway, we were speaking and he sort of said to me, one of the things that's really important is what hasn't changed? What's stayed the same? So I'd like to ask you, you know, over the 30 years that you've been trading, even with all the changes that have taken place, what are some of the things which have remained the same after all this time? Yeah, that, 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 that's great. It's great to look back and, and think about that. The reality is, is that, is that it really, you know, and I, and I hate to say this cause you're, you're trying to, you know, after, after 30 years, you want to say, wow, I'm so sophisticated and this, that the reality is the human nature is not changing fear and greed. It's exactly the same. There's still elation when you're right and despair when you're wrong that's not going to change and that's never going to change. And the things that work, it's, it's, it's funny because a lot of things that work will continue to work as long as it's based on the right premise. And, and I, I think that's, you know, and I, I know we can't came back to it, but I think that's just so important. And for me, like 30 years ago with pressure points and things like that, that's important. And that stuff still works today. Maybe the movement happens faster now where you can, you'll, you'll make money faster and, or if you're wrong, lose faster, but you know, you can adjust to that, right? All you have to do is lower your bet size down, lower your wrist down and you'll be in the same spot you were in. So, you know, the old saying is the markets change, but the markets always change and the markets always stay the same. And I, I think the successful traders kind of come back to the, the bottom line is why is it going up? It's it, a stock or a commodity or futures is going up today, probably for the same reasons it went up five, 10, 15 years ago. There, there's a reason that for one day there are more buyers than sellers or vice versa. And that's just not going to change. And, um, 
yeah, you can go and people can go and model things like that. But the, the reality is, is it comes back, back to the basic human nature, fear and greed. And that's not going to change. And, 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 and that look up that book that I mentioned, Reminiscences of Stock Operator. Let me tell you, when you read that, it's just it's just eye opening because those stories are exactly the stories that you will have today from trading. And you sit there and look at it and you go, oh, my God, this is 70 years ago. How can that be? They didn't have computers and things then. But you know what? They're exactly the same. And it's pretty cool. That's probably why I've been doing it so long. Because, you know, like, like we said before, I'm not a programmer. So if it was all just programming now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exist. I wouldn't have been able to adapt to that. But it's not. And, and, and it does come down to, you know, what's worked and observations. And um, for me, that's, that's been completely key. I really need to read that book. I know a lot of listeners are probably shocked right now. I've been saying it for a long time, but I've never, I've never read that book and it just keeps coming up all the time. It's just the problem I have is there's so many books I want to read and I'm not the fastest reader. So it, um, it's all about, you know, certain books taking priority, but I think I need to move this one up the list. Anyway, Larry, let's leave it at that for now. Um, I know you don't have a great online presence. Is there anywhere listeners can go to find out more about you? Yeah, you know what? It's funny that you mentioned that. I, uh, <laughs> One of the guys that works in the office, I've always really, really kept a low profile. And uh, I, I did that for a whole bunch of reasons. My love is the markets. And uh, I, I mean, I'm literally, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on anything. I am on Twitter and I am going to update all my stuff. It's going to be updated in the next 24 hours. I will get a social presence going <laughs> and uh, there will be ways to, to get in touch with me. I haven't, I mean, I have an email I can give you and you can do that if that wants. I mean, it, it's up to you. If, if anyone wants your email, just uh, hit me up and um, I'll, I'll uh, share Larry's email with you. That's probably the better way to do it. But do you know what your Twitter handle might be? I think it's, I think it's the name Larry Allentoff, but um, I will, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time, but I never reply. I, not that I don't reply. I, I'm, I'm like a much better listener, if that makes sense. I'm always taking in information and I'm often not sending out information, but it's under, uh, I think it's Larry Allentoff or Larry.Allentoff, but I can definitely text you back or send it through this, the Skype. Yeah. Yeah. We'll work it out. We'll put a link to it in the show notes because I'm sure some of the people listening to this will uh, be keen to follow you. So I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely, I mean, I'm definitely on Twitter. So like if you put my name into the thing, it will come up. Okay. Okay, cool. And I will also just mention you were on season two of wall street warriors. Um, all 10 episodes of that can be found on YouTube as well. So also post a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Larry, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you once again. I really appreciate it, Aaron. You, you, uh, you're doing great work here. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. 